Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight incredible women in STEM and discover who they are at home, at work, and everywhere in between. You can find all of our episodes online at podcast.swe.org or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Hello, I'm Karen Hording, the Executive Director and CEO of the Society of Women Engineers, and welcome to Diverse, a sweet podcast. We are live at We23 in the Diverse Podcast Studio today, and I'm so thrilled to be here with Dr. Ashley Hutterson. She is the STEM and Computer Science Equity Fellow at the U.S. Department of Education, and I'm excited to dive into our conversation around how we can better build and support STEM education and career pathways for youth. We also were joined by Dr. Hutterson at our congressional visits this past March, so we are so pleased to have her back with us today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hutterson. Thank you, Karen. I'm so excited to be here. So on Diverse, we love to start at the very beginning and kind of delve into your origin story in STEM. So what initially sparked your interest in science and engineering, and how did that evolve over time? So I love this question. My initial interest was really centered around blowing things up. I say that as a child, not as an adult. I was fascinated with chemistry, so my bachelor's is in chemistry. And what drew me to chemistry was literally sitting in my chemistry course um, in high school. I took chemistry freshman year, and it actually was an accident. It was a there were too many um, students in the general science course, so they, I got bumped to chemistry. And I realized that you could mix compounds together and things would change, like physically. So we blew some things up, we created some things, we molded some things, and I was just fascinated by the sense that these everyday chemicals that I saw in my house and my environment could actually like come together and create something completely different. It made sense and it clicked for me. And so that was kind of that interest in STEM. As I progressed along, I found out additional ways of how chemistry applied to our everyday life, especially around food. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. We love food. And so when I found out that there was a chemical component to cooking and how we regulate food, I was completely sold. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I love that story. And I also love New Orleans because of the food. So I I know you're native to New Orleans. We might have to arrange to meet up down there so you can take me on a little bit of a food tour. Yes. Um, You have a really strong academic background. Undergraduate in chemistry. PhD, MBA, certificates, fellowships, all the things. So can you talk a little bit about lifelong learning and how your education has influenced your leadership style? Definitely. So I, as you mentioned, I wholeheartedly value education. I think it is a tool that helps to navigate life. I recognize that some of my traditional path around education in terms of going to a four-year university, um, pursuing advanced degrees is not the path for everyone. And it's not the only way to to having a fulfilling life and a fulfilling career. It's, It's the path that I understood. I'll also stress that as a black woman, it's something that was taught and ingrained in me as a tool for success. There is this concept of having to be better and be great. There are pros and cons to that, but that really laid the foundation around wanting to pursue these aspects of education 
that were shown to be the vehicles to getting to um, a certain life that you wanted to lead, having purpose-filled and a driven life around those goals and things that, that excite you. Uh, my father used to always tell us, if you pick you do something that you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. And the way, the route to that was through education. Yeah. Well, I want to probe on something you mentioned in there about the need to be great. Because earlier in our session here at We23, you were a little bit vulnerable and you shared that you weren't a 4.0 student. And so can you talk a little bit about this idea of we need to be great and perfect in order to be successful when clearly there are many pathways to success. Yes, and I could do a whole podcast. I've actually done a whole presentation on the other F word, which we call failure. Um, I was not a 4.0 student, and I now wear that proudly. I maintain about a 2.8, 2.9 GPA in college until my senior year when I had a professor basically insinuate that I wasn't smart, and I said, okay, I'll show you, which is not the route. You don't have to live a, don't have to live a show me perspective, but... Um, and then I got a 4.0 just to show her that I could. But that was kind of my path. And even in graduate school, I had to retake a course along my PhD. Even in my MBA, I had to retake a course. And I look back and I realized that that kind of bump in the road was there in all of my educational experiences. And while I don't advocate for people to have to experience that, I do understand that it's possible to have those bumps and still continue. Earlier in the session, I was talking about how sometimes GPAs are gatekeepers to experiences and had a lot of experiences in my undergrad career I was not eligible for because I didn't have a 3.0 or a 3.5. I think I turned out fairly well. Uh, My parents are excited, right? But I recognize that those getting a C sometimes does not mean that you are a failure. I got a C in general chemistry, and I remember my father, he's full of all the anecdotes because he's a Southern man. He told me, I got a C in general chemistry, and he said, are you sure you want to be a chemist? And I said, yes, I'm going to be a chemist. And I graduated with my bachelor's in chemistry. But if I had taken the route or suggestions that were generally out there, that C meant that I should have changed my major. And if I had changed my major, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. No, I love that. You're looking at somebody that had to take organic chemistry twice to get a C. And same thing. I'm CEO of a, you know, 43,000 member global organization. I feel okay. But t- having to take something twice or admit to that failure and then even to say, okay, I'm okay with the C. I can move on and still be successful, I think is so important. And we hear that all the time, how women drop out at higher rates than men with higher grades than men. And, And it's just, it's so sad because perfection is not an indication of success, right? You were saying, you know, many CEOs are B and C students. Yes. Not A students. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about your work at Department of Education. You're a STEM and computer science equity fellow. What kind of work are you doing in the department and how are, are, in your role, are you trying to help women and other underrepresented minorities have access to STEM careers? So as an equity fellow in the Office of the Deputy Secretary, I'm serving as her STEM expert and I'm helping her to build out her STEM and computer science strategy for K-12 education for the nation. Um, A unique experience, one I'm so excited and just grateful to be able to step into. And that really involves examining the current K-12 
landscape around STEM. So who we educate, how we educate, and why we educate, and examining practices and policies that may need to be reshaped or just re-engaged with to figure out if they are really serving our nation the way that we want them to. Uh, the Department of Education recently launched the You Belong in STEM initiative, which is the key initiative around looking at belonging as the framework for recruitment and retention in STEM. And I'm fortunate to get to lead that work. I'm grateful that the department decided they needed a STEM expert to come in. I'm surrounded by former teachers, and I am not a former K-12 teacher. I am a, a cancer biologist, bench scientist by training. So it's very interesting, and it brings unique perspectives to the table, especially as we talk about diversity, right? And so a lot of that work, again, centers on belonging, which talks about how someone feels when they're in a space. Do they feel like they belong here? And we use that to center around STEM. And that goes for students and the student experience, as well as the educators who are teaching the students. So do the teachers see themselves as science teachers or math teachers or STEM teachers? And are they passing that along to the students? So a lot of the work and the policies that we are developing and sharing, the best practices that we're elevating around programs all over the U.S., center on belonging as that that foundation to really engage students. And we know the younger we start and the more frequent we start with exposing students to STEM, the better chance these students have of making an informed decision when it, when it comes to their career. And I want to reiterate that because a lot of times people think, well, you want everyone to be a scientist and an engineer. I'm very clear that I do not want that, right? What I want and what I think a lot of us really want when we drill down to it is to allow people to make an informed decision when it comes time to make their career choice. And we found that certain identities and certain groups have not been allowed to make an informed decision due to lack of access, resources, and exposure to really what STEM is. Yeah. Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the, the advocacy session that we did, but about the economic impact and why educating our youth about STEM and STEM opportunities and giving them that access to your point is so important. You know, recently in the U.S., we had the Chips and Science Act, mm -hmm. a lot of investment, but we really need to make sure that youth from all backgrounds understand the opportunities and then have access, if that is of interest, to pursue that type of education, to be part of you know, what I think is the, the part of our economy that is the most robust and will continue to grow. So could you share a little bit about that piece around STEM careers and education around STEM careers? Definitely. So I'm a science geek. I think science is woven into everything that we do. Whenever I go and talk to students, I tell them to give me any career, any interest, and I will show you how science is integrated into that. And so I really think we have a marketing issue, right? Explaining to people how science is actually integrated into our everyday life and showing the possibilities of that. And I can use myself again as an example. When I, I majored in chemistry and I originally wanted to work for a plant that focused on potato chip development. I won't go into the name and details, but I was like, I love potato chips and there's a job that allows you to regulate, you know, is this bag safe? And I want to do that. This is from a high school's perspective. So that I fell into that or I was interested in that because that's what I was shown. Right? I was exposed to someone who had a chemical engineering degree. They did that job. I thought the job was cool. That was the path I was on. I got to college and I found out that engineering took five years versus four. And my parents said they were only paying for four years of my degree. And so I was like, hmm, I'm going to keep chemistry and drop engineering. But things come full circle, 
right? And so I was then exposed to forensic science. And this was when uh, CS came out, um, CSI was coming out, and everyone was like, what is this thing? And they're using chemistry to solve crimes. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to do, right? Exposure, right? I saw it on TV, and that's what I aligned with the skills that I had. And I went to a very prominent, well-known college, and for all intents and purposes, they did a very good job of exposing us to different options, but that's what I saw. Um, decided to pursue forensic science, stuck with chemistry, and then I tried to get into uh, programs for forensic science and I wasn't accepted, right? We talk about those detours, but I got into a PhD program, a PhD program that focused on toxicology. Well, the core of forensic science is toxicology. So I said, I'll, you know, I do this, it's a line. I get there and the toxicology program isn't exactly what it was supposed to be, but there's a cancer biology avenue. And I'm like, cancer biology and toxicology turns out carcinogen, right? So that exposure. And so learning what the options are. Um, I pursued my PhD in biomedical research, but I also realized that there were some pieces around bench scientists that didn't fully align with some of the things that I wanted to do. And I'm going to be very transparent. Um, one of my PIs, whose lab I was in, and he's an amazing gentleman. He's still an advocate of mine today. We talk regularly. When I saw the life he lived as a bench scientist, it didn't feel like I saw myself there for a host of reasons, right? And so I started to look for spaces where I felt like I better aligned. And this concept of policy came up. But when I entered into my PhD program, I never knew that you could have a PhD and go into policy work that was always centered around law or political science. And so, again, I talk about exposure and access, right? And I also use that example to show access along the way where you can pivot. So I got into the policy space, and at the time, this was 2012, 2013, when I graduated my PhD, STEM policy was something that was viewed as taboo, and you met in the corner of a conference, and you were these alternative paths, right? And then an article came out that showed that most PhDs did not pursue an academic career, and then it kind of felt like it just exploded in a good way. And so that was exposure. I never knew the job I have today was an option. And so I think when we talk about access and equity, it's a marketing piece. How do we show students that they can actually use the skills that they learn in science, technology, engineering, and math in a host of positions? And I think that's the core of where a lot of our programs center, a lot of the initiatives that nonprofits and other organizations try to create is really around showing you all the possibilities in places that science can take you because it literally can go into art, law, history. You have to have someone who's drawing the figures in the book. Someone has to write the paper. Someone has to design the chemicals. And so there's just it just touches everything. Yeah. There really isn't anything in our world today that isn't touched by science or engineering. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, we see that even here at SWE where our university students are like, oh, well, I'm a mechanical engineer. Why would that industry want me? Or, you know, I'm a chemi. Why would that industry want me? And it's like, because there are so many options that you can you can do once you have that training that you don't want to limit yourself. And I tell people you can a la carte your career based on your skill sets and it's it's and that's what I've done and it's amazing to see the doors that open when you give yourself the freedom to say, This is my interest, these are my skills and it may not sit 
in that space that traditionally I saw it, but it still has a, a place. Yeah. Well, I'm curious a little bit about the fellowship pathway and how you ended up at Department of Ed. How does that work for listeners who may be thinking, gosh, I've worked in industry or I've worked in academia and I'd really like to get into influencing policy. How do I even approach that? We need you. Um, So I've done two fellowships. The first one was a AAAS fellow, and I worked at the National Science Foundation. The AAAS fellowship is designed to take scientists and engineers and place them into government agencies as subject matter experts to show you the impact of how science and engineering influences policy and vice versa. And so you step into this space, you're stepping outside of your traditional training, but you're using those same skills and you're transferring them into that policy arena. I loved it. It was early in my career, and I really was i was exposed to how government worked and that piece of the stakeholder puzzle. I decided that I wanted to be more involved on the ground in programmatic development. And so after that fellowship, I took a position at an engineering professional society as a director of engineering education and outreach, designing programs, working with students, working with the workforce. It was amazing. I then learned of this another opportunity called the STEM Next Opportunity Fund. Similar to AAAS, but not exactly the same, STEM Next Opportunity Fund also takes subject matter experts, um, and you, scientists or people working in the science space, policy-related, and places them in government agencies to really help drive and impact STEM policy as well. So there are a host of fellows that are working in different agencies, and we're all, the common denominator is that interest in STEM education and STEM policy. So for engineers and scientists who are maybe working in a more traditional space, you're going to take those skill sets and transfer them into policy. You're going to help to understand how things are funded, why they are funded, how they get funded, which is something that we're often not taught at our level. Um, understanding who's making some of the decisions that impact your work in that traditional space. I knew grants were a thing, but I didn't understand how grant funding was allocated. Didn't understand how the agencies received their budget. Um, That kind of cross-disciplinary training you don't really get in the undergrad or the professional space around your chosen career path. And so these fellowships, I think, allow you to see that intersection and really understand a bigger piece of the puzzle and how your expertise fits into that puzzle. Well, I think that's so important because when we look at Congress, for instance, there's not nearly the number of scientists and engineers there that we would like to see, or even at many of the other federal agencies and let alone, you know, cascading down to the state level. So we really need scientists and engineers in these advocacy roles so that they can help our legislators and others at the agencies make the best decisions to influence STEM. So you've been at this a while. How have you seen things change in terms of outreach and advocacy over your time in this area? So I think there's more grace being given to exploring the various career options. As I mentioned, when I started toward the tail end of my PhD, 2012-2013, the concept of policy and STEM, at least in my arena, was considered new and different. And I was fortunate to have people in my corner who wanted to support me, but they didn't really know how to support me. So they weren't barriers, which is important, but they couldn't really be advocates for me because they didn't know how to train me to do this. They could train me to be an academic 
but they couldn't train me to go into policy. They just didn't know that space. And so I think I've seen, to me, I've seen more understanding around that interest. I've seen more programs interested in cultivating the intersection of the skills that are required for this kind of combination of careers. I've seen more flexibility in paths of how you get or attain your interests. And I mentioned that whole a la carte piece. I think there's more autonomy over people over our time around where we put our interests. I'm very fortunate that I feel like my passion, my purpose, and my position align. And I, but I recognize that that's not something that that everyone has the the privilege to experience. And so I think I'm seeing more flexibility and allowing people to find that right, identifying not necessarily a career or what you want to be when you grow up, but what problem do you want to solve and helping people figure out how to solve that problem versus giving them a hard label saying you have to be an engineer, you have to be a doctor, you have to go to this. Yeah. Well, when I was working at AAAS late 90s, early 2000s, I worked on a program called Sciences Next Wave, which was for graduate students and postdocs to find out about alternative careers because academic science roles, there were just way more grad students and PhDs than there were academic positions. And so it was, you know, I think at that time it was sort of like, oh, you're going to go over to the dark side and do something else like science policy or science journalism or something. But it's so important that there's not just one path when you have this background. There, like you said, the intersectionality. And I also think this flexibility has allowed for more identities that have historically been excluded for STEM to enter into the space and see a place for them there. There are lots of things around traditional engineering and science training direct and indirect, that don't always align with the various identities that have historically been excluded. And so I think these this flexibility, this respect of different pathways allows for those identities to find a place within science and to find a path within science. And I think that's important, which is why I think we're seeing more people with that interest, as well as pursuing this desire. I think about the tenure process. I think about the grant writing process, how competitive and and all those pieces that don't always align with everyone's lifestyle. And so other aspects of the career allow for you to do that. They allow for you to care for your family, care for your parents who may be aging. They allow for you to process your own career and goals, personal and professional. And so I think that's very important as people begin to look for careers and spaces they want to enter. Yeah, I agree. That tenure path can be very challenging for women, especially. Mm-hmm. So at SWE, advocacy is a big part of our mission. It's a big part of what we do. So how can our listeners get involved in STEM advocacy and particularly supporting the Department of Education's You Belong in STEM program? Excellent question. A question that I wish someone had answered for me was I was pursuing my PhD. Um, I would definitely say get involved, right? Get involved in professional societies. Take leadership roles. A lot of times I think students and, and sometimes early career, we, ne- we neglect the benefit of really being engaged. And sometimes it's a time thing, but there's a lot of opportunity with being involved in your professional society. There are paths for leadership. There are paths for engagement. Um, there's networking opportunities. You meet other professionals. And so I think that level of engagement is very important and it's something that we often don't stress. And we don't necessarily create this consistent path of engagement. 
I think that's one area that I would I would advocate. You should belong to at least two professional societies. One, I think, that aligns with the identity that you want to relate to, and then one that's maybe just technical that doesn't necessarily have that identity affinity tied to it. I also, in terms of you belong in STEM, we're really interested in learning about what's on the ground, right? What work is being done at the federal level we have a very, our view is very high up and wide. And so we want to learn about the opportunities that people are doing every day on the ground because those programs are the ones that are going to change and make that difference. That is the program that is going to inspire a student to do something that they otherwise may not have known was an option. And so learning about those programs, getting involved on the programmatic level, I think is very important. Things like mentorship opportunities, um, community service, all these pieces involved in STEM, I think allow for that level of engagement and motivation for the next group. And it also shows you, it gives you an inch by inch step into this to determine how much you want to do and how much you're capable of doing. Because we all have, we're all trying to balance things, right? And so I think those levels of engagement on the ground, which then can lead to higher and larger opportunities, really allow you to see what's happening and where you want to have the most impact. Yeah. And for our listeners who may be involved in some great grassroots efforts locally, how is the best way for them to share that with Department of Ed and specifically for You Belong in STEM? I would encourage the listeners to Google You Belong in STEM at the Department of Education. We have a website. We have a host of resources on that website that talks about how to stay engaged, how to connect with other stakeholders who are also doing work, as well as let us know the work that's being done. Great. I encourage everybody to do that. So lastly, I want to shift back to your career. And, you know, you've talked about you've been in a couple of different spaces where you've worked from professional associations to bench science to now being at the Department of Ed. What is the one piece of career advice you would offer to our listeners? Maybe something you wish you would have realized sooner in your career. Your race at your pace. So being flexible but persistent with your career. I think oftentimes, I won't give all the cliche sayings because I am from the South and we love them, Um, but, you know, comparison is a thief of joy. I gave one more. So I think that we have to be patient with ourselves. We have to allow for those opportunities. And as an ambitious woman, it's really easy to say, okay, check mark, I did this, I did this. But being present and allowing yourself to really engage with what you have and recognizing that where you are is something that you wanted. And a few years ago, you were working toward or or praying toward or however you manifest things in your life to get to that level. And so I think taking your own race, right, at your pace is the most important part. So if you don't go straight into your PhD, it's okay. Um, If you pursue your bachelor's degree at 35, it's okay. If you get your PhD at 55, it's okay. I tell my mentees, when we say all the college graduates stand to the left, we don't say all those that went straight through. We say, if you have that degree, you stand there. If you have that experience. And so I think we have to be more patient with ourselves around some of those achievements. And also understand that sometimes a no is not a no. It's a not yet or something bigger is coming. Not right now. Yes. I know. Well, that is some great advice. I know our listeners will, will really appreciate that. And I have to say, Ashley, it's been such a pleasure having this time to talk with you, having you here at SWE. We're so honored that you were able to make the trip out west to be with us. And so to all of our listeners at SWE, we just want to say thanks for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. 
Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your social network. You can visit podcast.swe.org to keep up with our episodes and learn more about how the Society of Women Engineers empowers women to achieve their full potential as engineers and leaders.